could possibly, by accident, arrange to leave me behind here on this planet. That would be punishment enough. I can't do that, Harry. But I will appear as a character witness at your trial. If you think that'll help. They'll throw away the key. Hey everyone, all aboard for Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And every week on Enterprise Incidents, we do a deep dive into a brand new original series episode. And we are so excited because we love Star Trek. Star Trek has been a part of our lives since we were little itty bitty little kids. And we have grown up with Star Trek and we have we have had new perspectives on Star Trek episodes as we've gotten older. Episodes we used to like, we really love, and episodes that we really love, maybe that don't hold up so much. So here we are, two grown men, lifelong Star Trek fans, doing deep dives into each and every episode of Star Trek, the original series. That brings us to the current episode, because we are going in production order, ladies and gentlemen, not air date order production order is a whole lot more fun because we get to see the actual evolution of star trek as it happened this week's episode is muds women (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so funny because i mean both you and i i think we talked about that we love we love all of star trek and even the episodes that are lesser than they still have some soft spot in our hearts but i gotta say those first three episodes are so interesting and fascinating and just so exciting. And when, when, particularly when Shatner comes on and it just is really working. And now you get to this episode and it's like, okay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Steve? That's actually a great way to put it. And by the way, when you talk about how we've done the first three episodes, like I said, we are going in production order. So the first episode that we recorded for Enterprise Incidents was the cage. Usually people start off with where no man has gone before, but we started with Captain Christopher Pike on the cage. So if you haven't heard our Enterprise Incidents podcast on the cage, you got to go back and catch up. But that brings us, you know, here we are, Mud's Women. And Steve, you know, the, the uh, you know, okay, you know, okay, you know, sort of feel of this episode is such that I will take an okay Star Trek episode over good episodes of so many other TV shows, because even just an okay episode of Star Trek is still full of so many merits and Mud's Women does have a lot of merits. And I have to say that watching it, watching it again just recently to prep for this podcast, look, let's be honest, Mud's Women is not an episode that I watch over and over again, sometimes on a weekly basis, like some of these other episodes that we're going to talk about. So watching Mud's Women from start to finish again for the first time in a really long time, I found a whole lot more to like about it. But I still think it's like you said, eh, okay. <laughs> well, what's so funny about it is that when I was a kid, whatever episode of Star Trek was on, I watched. You know, mm-hmm. so I watched them all over and over again and fairly equally. You know, it's it, there was never a moment as a kid where a Star Trek episode was coming on and I saw what episode it was and I said, nah, I'm not going to watch it. That literally never happened. But as a grown-up, when we have streaming services and on-demand things, well, then I would look at lists of Star Trek episodes and pick one. 
I don't think I picked Mud's Women in a long, long time. So I hadn't seen it in a while. And it is, there are definitely some interesting things to talk about. Absolutely. But also, you know, when you're looking at the production order of Star Trek and you look at Mud's Women, like after Star Trek was sold to series, it was only the second proper series episode filmed after the Corbomite Maneuver. And the Corbomite Maneuver, as we discussed on episode three of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve, <laughs> did such a terrific job of yeah. laying the foundation for Star Trek. The Corbomite Maneuver is Star Trek's mission statement. And while the uh, the very detailed and thorough special effects kept that episode from being the first proper series episode to air, by the time it did air, it was uh, it was a great episode. Now, Mud's Women was the second episode to be filmed as part of the proper series. It was filmed between June 2nd and June 13th, 1966. It actually aired on October 13th, 1966, making it the sixth episode to air. The cost of this episode was $198,534, which is a little over $5,000 over the budget. Star Trek's first season per episode budget was $193,500. So this episode actually went $5,000 over budget, whereas the Corbomite Maneuver was $3,000 under budget. So whatever surplus they had from the Corbomite Maneuver was already gone. That's so crazy because I go like, where'd the money go on this one? It's not like there's (laughs) a lot of scale to it, you know? Well, if you if you ask me, I think the uh, the money went to the beginning, the teaser, Mm. where you see the uh, sort of the asteroid field, uh, which I have to say looks a whole lot better in the remastered version with the uh, the better visual effects. But this episode was written by Stephen Candle and was extensively rewritten by Gene Roddenberry. He came up with the original story concept. Now, here's the thing. Steve, we talked about how Mud's Women was one of the three scripts that were considered to be the second pilot for Star Trek. And thank goodness, thank goodness, they went with Where No Man Has Gone Before, which you and I both agree isn't just a great pilot. It's one of the very best Star Trek episodes ever made. But in actuality, Mud's Women was used in Gene Roddenberry's actual series proposal that he wrote on March 11, 1964, Hmm. where it was called, quite simply, The Women. And the short and sweet description of this episode was, and I quote, duplicating a page from the Old West, hanky-panky aboard with a cargo of women destined for a far-off colony. That was all... That was all Roddenberry had, but that was enough for him to commission Stephen Candle to write the screenplay and do a couple of passes before he fine-tuned it. And the episode was directed by Harvey Hart. It was the only episode that he directed because the episode went one day over schedule, and it was a hard episode to cut and edit because of the very artistic and challenging camera angles that Harvey Hart used while filming this episode. And you can see it in the episode, some of the camera angles that Harvey Hart used. Uh, and it was not, a, a lot of these angles were were not 
used again in later episodes. One thing I do love about this episode is the score composed by Fred Steiner. Uh, that score was recorded on September 7th, 1966. Um, you so much in here that I wanted to comment on. So the first thing is, it was so funny that description that it said that he said, like taking a page from the old West, because that's what I've always thought. This is the Western, like, and Gene Roddenberry wrote Westerns, and this is totally bringing out the mail order brides to the guy who's the who's you know in the gold rush. I mean, that's literally what the story is, and I've always thought that. And so it's funny that that actually is in the description. Um, in terms of the camera work. I really noticed it this time, partially because I was watching for this show, but it's really weird the way it was shot. And as an editor, you know, uh, I can see why it was really hard to cut because it's breaking all sorts of rules and all the moves and, and rack focuses and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, that looks like it would be hard to cut. <laughs> well, a weekly series that was as challenging and, and production heavy and, and, and difficult to produce as Star Trek was. They were they were happy with the work that Harvey Hart did, but because he did go over schedule and because he presented some editing challenges, he was not invited back to to film another episode. Now, what you were talking about, Steve, about the old West, like one thing I do like about this episode is for one thing, and what I love this about so many episodes of Star Trek, is that you really get the sense that the Enterprise is really way the hell out there. And that these miners on Rigel 12, and we'll get to this, are really living on the fringes of the galaxy, of the explored part of the galaxy, which really does make this episode feel like, like a Western and feel like it's the old West and feel like space truly is the final frontier because these people are living on the outskirts of basically everything. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally absolutely agree. It does definitely give that impression. But before we get into the, our, our sort of like breakdown, overall... What is it about Mud's women that that kept you from loving it? That made you just go, it's okay. Well, I would say, let me say two things about it. The first thing is, is what I think it demonstrates, which is why I understand the idea of having to be the pilot, is that it demonstrates the flexibility of Star Trek. That's what I like. Or or I, that's the idea that I like. Because one of the great things about Star Trek is we could do heavy you know, heavy dramatic things. We could do exciting action things and we could do some kind of silly fun things. And this is trying to be in the sort of telling a totally different kind of story. Mm. What I think makes it kind of average is that I don't think they handle the stakes well. I mm. think that the, the situation is kind of blown up. It, there's a very serious situation going on and we're not really dealing with it. And we're dealing with this you know, relationships that don't quite make sense. Eve's feelings about the captain don't quite make sense. The miner's behavior doesn't quite make sense. You know, Harry Mudd is acting in a completely different movie. I mean, he's all over the, you know, and I like, it's funny. Uh, Mudd seems to be a very divisive character in Star Trek. There are some people that hate him. I like him, actually. Um, and I actually like I Mudd as a completely different kind of episode. But yeah, I think this doesn't all hold together right. That's my feeling. When you look at the first season of Star Trek, the episode that often gets credit for being the first sort of lighthearted comedic episode is Tomorrow Was Yesterday, you know, where they pick up the Air Force pilot mm -hmm. and they go back in time. Uh, but this is actually the first episode to do it because of, of basically Roger C. Carmel's scene stealing or scene chilling performance. Yeah. As 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 Harry Mudd, and I I think you're right. I I, I like Mud I Mud a lot. You know the second season episode, 
you know, I think of all the characters to, to revisit uh, throughout the three seasons of Star Trek. I mean, it was it was nice to see, you know, some rare continuity where they they brought back a character. And I think by the time I Mud aired in the middle of the second season, you know, this is when Gene Kuhn is doing the day to day producing of the show. Look, I'd like we said before, uh, Star Trek second season is is just the greatest season of Star Trek ever produced over 55 years. And but but my point is that they really figured out what Star Trek was by then. It was a well-oiled machine. They knew what they were doing. But with Mud's Women, second episode as a proper series to be filmed, they were still figuring themselves out, particularly Leonard Nimoy in trying to figure out what was working for him as Spock and what was not working. But one thing that I really do love about this episode, in addition to the score, Fred Steiner's score, is Jerry Finnerman's cinematography. The lighting, the, the, the use of the colors, and the use of the shadows, the use of the soft focus for Mud's Women. There is a lot to admire about the look of this episode. And I don't mean the look of the actual women, but I mean the look of the cinematography and the production design. It, it's funny because I kind of I kind of disagree on that because but p- partially because this is not the direction Star Trek ends up going. So it looks very not Star Trek to me. And, and you know, this is where you get into me as a person who, you know, went to film school and teaches directing that like, I, I go, oh, that soft focus is too much. You know, even as a kid, I think I thought it was a little bit too much. It feels to me like a director trying to show off as opposed to what you see in like, Corbin Knight or Balance of Terror or things like that, where there are some interesting camera moves, but they're they're held back a little bit more, I would say. First of all, I think you're right. I think uh, in terms of not looking like Star Trek, I mean, I admire the way that the episode looks. And obviously, as the series went on, it didn't, even Jerry Finneran figured out what to do, what was working, what wasn't working. I think this episode does have an interesting look to it. But, uh, you know, uh, the soft focus, like when you get to other episodes, especially love stories, I like the soft focus. I always liked the way they shot, like, you know, Yeoman Rand and, uh, you know, obviously Edith Keeler and City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, you know, I, I think that just goes with the territory when you're watching Star Trek. You know, there's a there's a love interest. And, yep, bring on the soft focus, baby. <laughs> sure. But while you think it doesn't look like Star Trek, I think the episode doesn't feel like Star Trek. Yeah. Because of just the way it marginalizes women, it's sexist, it's dated, it's the episode with the space hookers. You know, this is not, doesn't really represent Star Trek at its finest. But at the same time, the episode does come with a message. And it does. that is very much in tune with what Star Trek was all about. So this episode, I think, just is a, an exercise in paradoxes in the sense that they were still not quite there and it would still take a few episodes for them to get there, for them to really just like get it down and hit their stride and really get the right feel for what Star Trek is. I wish, Scott, I could put you in soft focus right now and it might make our conversation a little bit more romantic. (laughs) Yeah, Zoom doesn't really do the trick, does it? But, you know, listen, this is uh, still... A landmark episode because it was an early episode. And while this episode was airing in October, uh, some interesting history happened around the airing of this episode. Oh, yeah. You know, again, it, 
you know, it, again, it aired on uh, October 13th, 1966. So on October 9th, my friend, the Baltimore Orioles beat the LA Dodgers in game four to win the world series oh. on October 10th. The Beach Boys released their most famous, their most successful, and their most influential song, single of all time. That song is Good, Good, Good Vibrations. On October 14th, after his return from South Vietnam, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara sent a memo to President Johnson saying the U.S. effort there was failing. And I quote, I see no reasonable way to bring the war to an end soon. And then on October 16th, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton created the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Oh, it's so it's so amazing putting this in context of the mm. some of the turmoil that's going on in the country, you know, right here in the middle of the 60s. I mean, it's just thinking that you would change the channel on the news from watching Vietnam or hearing about the Black Panthers, and then you'd put on Mud's Women. That is one of the reasons why Star Trek stood out, why it was and is 55 years later still great, why Star Trek, maybe not Mud's Women didn't do this, but why Star Trek as a whole inspired people to become scientists, become astronauts, become doctors, because, Steve, at that time, just like you said, between Vietnam and civil rights, the counterculture, the Cold War, uh, here was a show that was positive. And I think that for people who say, and I don't want to, I don't want to knock, uh, you know, the, the later Star Trek shows, which, uh, but I just, I'm not a fan of dark Trek. I want my Star Trek to be aspirational yeah. and inspiring and full of hope and, and give us something to look forward to. And I think that that's one of the many reasons why the original series still stands as, as the best Star Trek series of them all. Yes, I said it. That's why we're here. <laughs> Captain's log, stardate 1329.8. The USS Enterprise in pursuit of an unidentified vessel. There, there are some Star Trek teasers that did you just go, holy Toledo, wow, that was a great teaser. Like the teaser for like Mirror Mirror or the teaser for the Doomsday Machine. Uh, you know, when you just go, Holy Toledo, you put all that in just a three to four minute teaser. You know, the teaser for Mud's Women is is very like, okay, you know, it, it, it catches your interest a little. Like, what is the ship they're chasing? And they go into an asteroid field. Uh, but uh, again, one thing I notice here in the in the teaser is Fred Steiner's score, is yeah. the cinematography, the camera angles. And especially what I like about it is that the, the dynamic on the bridge. Everyone knows their place. Everyone's contributing. Everyone, it's this is really the dynamic between Kirk and Spock and 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 Kirk and Scotty and Sulu and Kirk and even Lieutenant Farrell, the uh navigator, uh and, and Kirk. Uh, I just, you know, you see them all working and and Kirk uh, I think in the earlier episodes, certainly more than the later ones were where Shatner would sort of like lay it on a little, a little thick with the, with the acting, you know, the earlier episodes, Kirk is cool as a cucumber. I, he does not break a sweat at all. And I think that just when you walk, like when you look at Corbomite maneuver, when the cube starts spinning and it, it's about to explode, it isn't until Bailey freezes that Kirk yells at him, lock phasers. But in this, um, when they're chasing the ship into the uh, asteroid field, 
they keep their cool. You know, they're they're just a it's a well-oiled machine on the bridge of the enterprise. Well, and, but this also is, you know, I said that I feel like the stakes in this show just don't quite match up. You know, we just came out Corbomite maneuver where the ship felt really powerful. And the thing we were up against was super powerful. There's really, really high stakes. And yet the Enterprise basically almost gets killed in the very teaser doing something that seems so nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, wait, yeah. wait, that you wiped out the dilithium crystals and this is going to be the end of the ship. You know, like the last episode, we dealt with crazy stuff. And I think that's kind of how I feel throughout is that, I mean, what's happening is really big. We are all going to die. And yet nobody's really acting like this is a big deal. It's a very, it's a very strange kind of miscue, you know, between them for me. So they've decided to sort of extend their shields to cover this other mysterious spaceship that's veered into an asteroid field. And it's definitely not equipped to be in an asteroid field that taxes their lithium crystals, not dilithium, because this is the only the second time after where no man has gone before that the crystals are referred to as lithium crystals. After this point on, it'll be dilithium crystals. But when the uh, crystal circuits short out, the sound effect that they used, you know, just didn't feel like a very uh, foreboding sound effect that like we're losing, we've lost our lithium crystal circuit. It just sounded like a little, you know, you know, stuck your finger too close to an electrical socket. Um, but uh, it it does it does sort of put the enterprise at its limit, uh, where they're in sort of a similar situation in uh, where no man has gone before, where where Earth bases that were just days away are now months or years at a distance. Uh, but uh, this is the point when they uh, they have to beam this crew aboard, and that's when we see our first appearance beaming aboard the transporter platform of well. He's not Harry Mudd yet. He's Captain Leo Walsh. Yeah. I love his performance. I think it's really fun. I think it shows kind of the flexibility of Star Trek for me. Um, it's funny but watching, you know, old TV from the 60s. This guy would pop up here and there in various parts. Uh, and he's always a very fun actor. And I think one of the interesting things that it does show is some of the comedic element you know skills of Shatner later on like you see some of those moves that he has because he's playing off of this guy yeah absolutely uh that's a really really good point Steve you know because when you get to an episode like tomorrow's yesterday and you start to you get a be much better sense of Shatner's comic timing which was just brilliant yeah. I mean you know because we'd see much much later in his career he was like wait a minute and we're like no 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 did you not see the trouble tribbles a piece of the action Shatner is funny yeah and yeah, like you, I was like when I was growing up and I was watching TV uh, on UHF. Remember UHF? Uh, and I remember there was a show called The In uh, The Mothers in Law, mm. and that was where I first got a uh, sort of a glimpse into Roger C. Carmel, and uh, and that was around the same time that I was starting to watch uh, Star Trek anyway. And by the time I got to to Mutt's Women because I had started watching it. It was already in the second season. So when it started over and I was like, oh, that's the guy from Mothers-in-Law. But right. uh, uh, I think that just overall, Roger C. Carmel's performance makes makes the episode better than it probably is. And he's what this episode needed to make it decent enough <laughs> to the point where it's it's not 
the alternative factor. It's not and the children Shelley. It's it's watchable, even if it's not a favorite that I that I binge on, uh, like like we just talked about. So let's beam his crew aboard. I th- I'm ready to meet them. They sound interesting. Well, before they before the crew actually beams aboard, an asteroid strikes the spaceship and it explodes. But fortunately, the crew was caught in the transporter beam and was safely beamed aboard. Every bit of hair and makeup and their dress in place. What I like is that uh, Leo says, I think my crew is in place now. And what he means is that they're all striking perfect poses. <laughs> so yep. when they arrive on the Enterprise, they, they, you know, they look like fashion models. It's- and these three women, you have Eve played by Karen Steele, Ruth played by Maggie Threat, and Magda played by Susan Denberg, who was also missed August 1966 in that year's issue of Playboy. So. Oh. Yeah, there you go. No wonder this crew was so happy. Um, But that is when we see the effect immediately on the male crew members of the Enterprise as Scotty and McCoy uh, can't keep their eyes in their sockets. And Spock is looking at both of them like, what's your problem? (laughs) And they play it really well. I think DeForest Kelly and James Duan play play this. They, They knew what was required for this scene and they play it very very well and it's it's fun in in the way that i mean and and this so we should say i think that i believe in judging art both for its time and for our time so this whole episode deals with gender roles and male female relationships in a very old you know 1960s way and so are they objectifying these women throughout this whole show? Oh yeah. Are yeah. they, you know, that is what the show is about. And so like there there are some feelings I have about some of the stuff that gets said and done in this episode, but it's the mid sixties. I mean, I think what you said before is it's a really good point. What's the most problematic thing about it. It's not really Star Trek, you know, right. it's not reflecting right. Star Trek values, but it's a good point. But the bits of, you know, McCoy, not being able to respond quite right or not responding to the captain on the bridge and all that stuff is funny. It's funny stuff. That fellow sounded a might upset at me. Yes. Yes, they are. You know, Leonard Nimoy's, you know, his sort of take on Spock at this point is to you know, you see him curious and amused by the reactions that McCoy and Scotty are giving. And, you know, this episode is one where Spock is kind of a wise ass. Uh, and and because that was the sort of take that Nimoy had on Spock at that moment, he does play it well. It's almost like he can't wait to see what his captain is going to think when he sees what this cargo was really is really all about. And Spock takes them over and goes into the turbo lift. You know, Spock is referred to as part Vulcanian. You're part Vulcanian, aren't you? Not Vulcan, but Vulcanian. It wasn't until later in the first season that he was just called, you know, a Vulcan. And then I love when Spock, uh, you know, goes into Kirk's quarters. He goes, the commander of the transport to see you, Captain. He's like taking a lot of joy in this. And then, of course, you know, Kirk looks up and sees Mutt's women. And, and then we have the same the- reaction as Scotty and McCoy. Well, and as it, everywhere the women walk that's where we get this score that you were talking about which is very much like you know hey big spender you know it's that kind of 
evocative of a certain kind of sexuality music. And you're also seeing like part of what's happening with the camera work is I think they're using longer lenses than they would normally use in Star Trek. And longer lenses bring the image much closer. And it also uh, narrows the depth of field. And what that means is how much stuff can I have in the frame that's in focus? So if you have someone standing behind someone else and you're in a wide lens, they'll both be in focus. The best example of big depth of field is Citizen Kane. But if you have the long lens, then it throws only a small part of the frame will be in focus. Everything else goes out of focus. And so he's using all these longer lenses, lots of people out of focus. And he also likes being in close-ups more than than in wider masters and two shots, which we see much more often in the rest of Star Trek. So that's part of what's looking different in this. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why Steve Morris teaches courses on directing. <laughs> and I just listen. <laughs> I listen when he says all that. Uh, so then, okay, so the women walk in and Kirk looks up and he sees the women. And the ladies? Is this your crew, Captain? Well, no, Captain. This is Nicargo. And then the surprised look on Shatner's face is, you know, a great, subtle reaction shot that's perfect for this episode. And that brings us to the end of the first act. What I think they do well is that Shatner clearly has a little bit more control over his, uh, over the effect the women are having on him than McCoy or Sulu or Scotty or any of those people. Not as much as Spock does, of course. The other thing I think we should point out is I think this is the first time that we see what I will call Gene Roddenberry's penchant for very scantily clad women. Like the the ridiculousness (laughs) of some of the costumes that he put women in or that Star Trek put women in in the course of this show, they, they get a lot sillier as we go along um <laughs> but this is the first like the the what is it is it magda's the blonde yes that's right like her outfit the short hair yeah a super super short skirt a lot of skin showing and this is the weird you know again this is like yes it is a progressive show that's about humanism and about you know gender equality and it's also a show about uh you know, nerds who like pretty girls, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, well listen, it, it, one thing that we haven't yet talked about through our first three episodes is the costume design uh, in the sense that, uh, listen, I love how retro the costumes look now. Uh, and of course, you know, the women on the Enterprise, you know, for the first two episodes, the women wore long pants yeah. and long sleeve shirts like the men. But by the time you got to the proper series, the women were in those really short mini skirts. So, so that was one thing that made it a little more uh, misogynistic. But also, you know, the costume designer William Ware Thice, Bill Thice, he uh, was a genius actually when it came to to designing costumes for alien races and for you know like the uh, uh, dress uniforms that the uh, the Enterprise crew wore. Uh, I love his costume design, but yes, under under Roddenberry's direction, he did uh, want the uh, skirts to be a little on the shorter side, and uh, you know that was 1966, friends. Yep. Well, how the devil am I supposed to know this is a starship, Captain? You know, Harry Mudd or Leo Walsh. I'm just going to call him Harry Mudd. Uh, he is just uh, a little too confident. You know, he tosses his hat onto Kirk's lap, and uh, the look that Kirk gives him. And by the time they, uh, you know, Kirk is called back to the bridge and the, the, the severity of the situation 
with losing their lithium crystal circuits and now they're on battery power uh, is brought to Kirk's attention. And you can see how, how frustrated Scotty is. That jackass Walsh not only wrecked his own vessel, but in saving his skin. It makes you feel any better, engineer. That's one jackass we're going to see skinned. You know, I like stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's another scene where if you look at the camera angle of that scene, it's not something that they used very often. State your name for the record. Leo Francis Walsh. Incorrect. Yeah, that whole thing felt very, very contrived. And I think they used it as an opportunity for a comedic bit. You know what I mean? And I think there are two things. One is, I, you know, they're still trying to figure out, well, what exactly does this ship, the Enterprise, do? And in this episode, they feel more like space cops than they do that we're law enforcement. In fact, there's that thing I think that was cut out of where no man has gone before, where he says, after practicing, you know, space law enforcement for a while. And it feels a little bit like that. And then you get the the funny bit of the lie detector machine, the computer continually going incorrect. State your correct name for the record. Everyone. Incorrect. Harcourt Fenton Mudd. Which is a really good name, by the way. Yeah, Harcourt. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ahead of ourselves here, but and it's a funny bit. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's funny enough, and that and actually, it's Roger Carmel who holds that scene together. But uh, the whole idea for them now is to make it to Rigel Twelve, where there is a lithium uh, colony, so they can get the, the uh, crystals they need to repower the Enterprise. Uh, and and the other thing we get too uh, in the tr- in this trial scene is at the very end we find out what the plot is. You know that these are women that Harry Mudd has made a deal to go have them be wives somewhere for rich men. And they and first so what, one thing about this, by the way, uh, everyone always refers to this as you know this is the space prostitutes episode, yeah, or yeah. space hookers. I don't think these are not prostitutes. They're not hookers. Like prostitutes sell uh, sex. And then go and sell sex somewhere else. These are mail order wives, mm. you know, and this is a thing that happened in the old West. Uh, when the prospectors and stuff went out for the gold rush, there were far more men than there were women. And they would try to entice women from back East to brave the, this huge journey to get to the West. And this is something that's gone on. In fact, still goes on today. There are places where women that are in poorer countries that don't really see a way out they get a bunch of money to go marry someone somewhere else. And, and here's the thing that I was thinking about, because I was maybe I was searching for deeper themes to talk about within this episode than maybe there are. <laughs> but one thing that I find really interesting is we all believe that the way that relationships work is people fall in love and then they decide to get married and they get married. That idea of romantic love and getting married for that, that's a pretty recent invention. It's only in the last couple of hundred years that we started thinking that is the norm. And there are lots of countries where it's still not the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you grew up and I I had students, I had a lot of students who were from India and their families all came from arranged marriages. Wow. You know, that's, that's in fact the norm. So the idea, so I, I actually, I personally don't have that much of a problem with this idea of someone making this choice. I think people are in charge of their own thing. And if that's what they want to do to get a better life, I'm kind of okay with it. And it certainly seems like Eve desperately and passionately wanted to get out of the situation that she was in. Fine, Evie, fine. No, it's not fine. We've got men willing to be our husbands waiting for us, and you're taking us in the opposite direction. 
Yeah, yeah. They they make Eve the more empathetic of the three women. Yeah. And by the way, that's really important. That's very, very important that you pointed out that they are not, you know, in fact, space hookers, but they are male order wives, so to speak. It's like a print the legend comment, you know, uh, right. it's been it's been talked about for so long that that, oh, it's the space hookers episode. And actually, it is not about space hookers. But we also see that up to this point in the relationship between Kirk and Harry, Kirk is the one that had the upper hand because he's the captain of the Enterprise. But at this point, we see the episode flip because Harry Mudd comes up with the idea to hold the Enterprise hostage in exchange for his freedom. And that's when he kicks his feet up onto the briefing room table and says, the next orders you're going to be taken come from Harcourt Fenton. But Love and it. it's a great way to end the second, uh, basically the midpoint of the episode. It, it's a good, it's a good bit. And then the other, so here's the other thing I had to look up because uh, I was thinking about it is that this his name always makes me think of my name is Mud. You know that expression. His name is Mud, and I'm sure that's why they picked it. Um, and do you know where that expression comes from? You're going to tell me. I am going to tell you, and it's a very interesting one. Is it comes from Doctor Samuel Mud? Who is the doctor that treated John Wilkes Booth's broken leg after he assassinated Abraham Lincoln? And so he was arrested as part of the conspiracy. There's no evidence that he actually knew that the, he just a guy walked in with a broken leg and whether or not he was part of the conspiracy, probably he wasn't. And so the my name is Mud is this is the guy that helped the guy that killed the, Abraham Lincoln. That is where that oh. comes from. Wow. Oh, my gosh. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, not only does Steve Morris teach directing, he, he teaches U.S. history. <laughs> I, 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 am, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's so fascinating. There's actually a movie about him. And I'm trying to remember who was in it because he once he, he was in prison forever after that. And then he and I don't remember all the details anymore, but he ended up being this just saint of a doctor in this prison working for years and years and saved a lot of people's lives. Well, here we go with Act 3. Now we're in sick bay, and uh, Ruth walks into the room and catches McCoy's uh, attention, distracts him completely. And then while she's trying to seduce him to kind of get the information that she wants from him, she walks by his medical scanner, and it starts to make a funny sound and a funny noise. And, you know, McCoy, I love that DeForest Kelly's uh, reaction to this. He kind of snaps out of it for a second, like, wait a minute. Would you walk past my panel again, please? He's so funny. I'm so glad these guys, I know all of them felt trapped by these roles to some degree, but there's a, this is a really good group of actors. And oh, yeah. he really knew how to play this kind of, I love the, it's not supposed to do that. <laughs> like, yeah, I love yeah, that yeah. little bit. It's funny. Yeah, these actors, you know, we're on episode four, but I, I can't wait for episode five, which is an episode that, we really get to see these actors bring their A game in one of the absolute seminal episodes in the development of the Kirk Spock McCoy relationship. I'm talking about the enemy within, but we're not there yet. We're yeah. still on Mud's women, and uh, and you, like you mentioned with Eve, you know she really wants out of this situation, and she is in Kirk's quarters trying to seduce Kirk. And, and Kirk is behaving himself, you know, flirting to an extent, but keeping his distance, even though she has her arms around him. And then she breaks down and just says, you know, the gig is up. I can't do this. I'm so sorry. You know, you seem like a super guy, but I can't do this. And she runs out of the room. And Kirk is like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and this is where I just feel like the script isn't quite 
tight because it, it's so funny because I read a lot of student scripts and things like that. And most of them are terrible and, and trying to diagnose like what exactly is the problem here? And I think the Eve Kirk thing is one of the things that is problematic because they're, tr- I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to do that. There is actually a genuine attraction, not just from Eve to Kirk, but from Kirk to Eve. And they're trying to do that. Harry Mudd has put her up to seduce Kirk and she doesn't want to do that because she actually likes the guy and she's actually an honest person. I totally understand what the, that's what they're trying to do, but it doesn't quite work. Like we never see an actual moment of real connection between the two of them. If you had the actual moment of real connection and then she played on it in order to seduce him and then backed off, then that would kind of work. But it's more falls into this, like they keep kind of telling us that there's something going on here, but there really isn't. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, although I, I do think that that uh, William Shatner and Karen Steele had very good chemistry. I just feel like this was another another part of the story that feels forced and contrived. Yeah. But one thing that that the episode does sort of uh, set up is that something something is starting to be a little off with Mud's women. Uh, you know, the scene where, you know, Mud uses the communicator that Magnus stole to call Rigel 12, which, you know, the fact that he was able to reach out to Rigel 12 through a little communicator and no one on the bridge got wind that Harry Mudd was was doing this. Another another contrivance in the episode. But, well, you know, I don't want to be too hard on it. Well, and again, it's like, I understand what they were trying to do. Like the idea that the women were each go, had to go on a mission and use their feminine wiles to do a thing. That's what they're trying to do. But we don't really get to see that actually happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. But when when we uh, find Kirk on the uh, on the bridge talking to McCoy, you know, they're trying to figure out what like like what is it about Mutt's women? Like why are they having such an effect on us? Do they really look different from other women that we've seen? Are we tired and they're and they're beautiful and they are so beautiful? Are they, Jim? Are they actually more lovely, pound for pound, measurement for measurement, than any other women you've known? I mean, like look around you, look on the rest of the starship. We've got beautiful women all over the place. But uh, when the Enterprise finally reaches Rigel 12 and we go back to Mud's women and we see them finally for the first time for who they really are, it is a it's a really good scene. It's creepy. They definitely look different. But, you know, this becomes like the point where we're starting to steer into what this episode is ultimately about the Venus drug that they were taking to look beautiful has worn off and Harry can't find where he put them. And then when he finally does the two of the women, uh, Ruth and Meg take it like they, you know, like just snatch it out of his hand. Eve is reluctant to take it, but she finally does. And then they all look beautiful again. There's so much about this scene that, I think is worth talking about. And and the first thing is, is the value that it puts on physical beauty. And I think even as a ki- kid, I think even then I had a little bit of trouble with it. And part of it, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 70s after the hippie movement. Both my parents went to Berkeley. Like I was a raised in a very women's lib sort of environment. And so the idea of it's horrible that I'm ugly is like exactly the message you don't want to send. Even in the sixties, 
Like that's a really problematic message. It's also problematic that you have three incredibly beautiful women that you're trying to make look ugly, you know, which they do succeed to some degree with the makeup. And we're also talking about, to some degree, this is an episode about drug addiction, I Mm -hmm. think, you Mm -hmm. know, because it's not just that the, what we learn later, that the Venus drug changes appearance, but it also changes personality because that's what Harry Mudd says later on. And so there's all these things that are kind of happening that we don't quite address. Um, One other thing about it is that when we see the Venus drug, it sparkles. Mm-hmm. That's a really important little detail. And who is the person who most resists taking it is Eve. You know, you really bring up a, a, obviously a, a, an amazing point. This episode was controversial, not just because it, it objectifies women, but also because it was about, about drug addiction and about drugs. You know, this episode aired in 1966. You know, this is when the cult, the, the counterculture was really starting to become uh, well-known. It's when uh, Ken Kesey's uh, uh, LSD experiments were going on, you know, but yet even with the objectification of women and the, uh, the, the sort of space hookers, you know, for lack of a better term, angle of it, and even with the drug aspect of it, it still aired. It still yeah. got by the censors. And that was because it was disguised as science fiction. Exactly. And if it was a straight ahead drama, probably they would not have gotten away with it. But because it was a science fiction series, they got away with it. Go on, Eve. Take it. It's not a cheat. It's a miracle. And that's when Childress from Rigel 12 beeps aboard the Enterprise. And Kirk is ready to do business. And he is making demands because he's already talked to Mud. What did you have in mind? Mud's women. I love Shatner's reaction to this. He goes, <laughs> Is there anything else? Childress is stern serious. He goes, If you beam down there, you won't find one blessed crystal. Kirk, like he, he, you see, you see, clutches his jaw. And then he says, no deal. Like basically saying, who the hell do you think you're talking to? That's a great moment. That I love. Again, I don't think this, uh, I am going to be pretty critical of this episode. I just, you know, there's just things that it just, the more I think about it, the the more problems it has. And, the, and one of the big ones is we are talking about the death of hundreds of people and the miners coming without having seen the women, just deciding we're willing to, blackmail hundreds of people over their deaths without seeing the women. Um, that doesn't ring true to me. And it, and it, I mean, this is a terrible, terrible thing they're talking about doing. But when the women enter from that point, if, we, if we've established that they have these magnetic, magical effects on men, then I, do, then I start to believe it. But that's not the way the scene is structured. So now we beam down to Rigel 7, and it is, uh, it's a great set. And you got the wind machines going on. You got the dust, uh, the dust blowing around, and they go into sort of the bar, if you will, where the three miners and uh, the three women are canoodling up and dancing along. And Kirk Spock and Harry Mudd are there too. And the music in the background is called Space Radio, <laughs> and it's composed by Fred Steiner. And like I said before, I. Uh, the score for this episode I like very, very much. And but the thing is, is that 
Here is an episode where Kirk is up against Harry Mudd. In the three years to come, we have seen, or we will have seen, Kirk face off against much bigger, much more dangerous, much more ominous and scary foes. But he is helpless against Harry Mudd. Like, are you kidding? That this guy is the one that's holding the Enterprise hostage. It's just, it's just a crazy thing. But I think that's, see- a, I think that's a fantastic point that I hadn't quite thought about it. And that, and again, I'm, that's another problem with the show. It's literally in the last episode we saw him invent Corbomite to manipulate <laughs> this hugely powerful alien to not destroy a ship, and now his ship again is facing imminent destruction. And he's like, ah, I guess there's nothing I can do. Like, where's Kirk? Like, why is not he not trying to solve this problem? He just got to wait. He's just got to wait, right? You know, and even even uh, you know, Spock says like, you know, we don't have that much time. And Kirk like snaps at him, like, you got a better idea. But you know, the the three miners are are fighting over the three women, and they start fighting with each other. And Eve is already disgusted by the whole thing, and she runs out of the out of the bar and into the, the windstorm. Well, and the thing that Eve says as she's leaving is, "Why don't you just run a raffle and the loser gets me?" I do like this, and I and and what I think is, and again, I go, "Oh, if only you were able to follow up some of this stuff." Is because what is that showing? It's showing Eve's insecurity. It's showing because Eve, part of her resistance to the Venus drug is that's not her, you know, is that she's a person who wants love. She wants human connection. And now she thinks the only reason anyone likes her is because of this drug, including Captain Kirk. And now even with the drug, she feels rejected, you know, and I think this this is pointing to an interesting thing when you have something that is false being the thing that attracts people to you, you can't trust it, you know, because mm-hmm. it's not yeah. really you. Like you think about, are they coming to me because I'm a rock star or are they coming to me because I'm me? But I think it was, I think uh, it's Rita Hayworth who had the quote, you know, it's something like they went to bed with Rita, but they woke up with me. And I think that's what Eve's going through. And Kirk goes after her and then Childress goes after both of them. And, you know, Kirk can't see you know, two feet in front of him. And it's actually Childress who saves Eve and brings him back to his quarters. And uh, Kirk is back on the Enterprise and uh, they're they're running out of time. And then we see, you know, just shortly after Kirk snapped at Spock, Kirk snaps at Scotty. We only have those crystals. But we don't. I didn't get any. I should have found a way. Satisfied, Mr. Scott. And this is a one episode after Kirk snapped at McCoy and apologized to him. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, this this uh, one, this one I buy much less. Yeah, I agree. The other one, the tension was much, much higher. So Eve is back in children's quarters and, you know, she looks fine. She just looked like, you know, she was a little weathered because she was out in the storm. And I actually think that the chemistry between between Karen Steele as Eve and uh, Jean uh, Donarski as Ben Childress is actually pretty good. Totally agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. They they did have a good banner, uh, a good back and forth. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just, they're just talking and, and, you know, she gives him the idea to uh, put his pans out in the wind and let the the dust blast the, you know, blast it free. So he does that, you know, and then he walks back into his quarters and Eve looks, well, looks like the drug has worn off and, the attraction he had to her is is gone. And 
I can't get past this. He was had a great conversation with her and he was totally with her in the scene before. And now because her looks have faded because the drug wore off, he's repulsed by her. And I get that that's, that's what we're leaning into, but I, I just don't like this part of the episode. You know what I mean? I, I, do, I totally do. And there's, there's just several things that are wrong. The, the other thing that's wrong is the Enterprise is literally dying. Like there's this really dramatic thing happening and we're spending this really long scene with these two people talking. And I agree that they have some chemistry, but I also think even when she's beautiful, you know, when she's cooking for him and stuff, he is horrible to her consistently. He is yeah, mean to yeah. her. And then when he comes back and she's playing double jack, not solitaire, Scott, it's not <laughs> different rules. With the, it's not quite the <laughs> same rules jack. as Fizbin. Those That's completely different. But, Completely different, except on Tuesday. Except on Tuesday. <laughs> um, uh, but she's not nice to him. I mean, she is she is cold and, and aloof, and he is angry. And, of course, the, the ship is dying right now. Um, it's a very, very strange scene. What the devil happened to your looks anyway? I got tired of you. I slumped. You heard what I said. You're homely. It's starting to build toward like domestic domestic yeah. violence. And then, you know, Kirk and, and Mud, you know, save the day by walking in the door in the nick of time. I didn't touch her. Thank heaven you found her. And then we sort of get to the point of the episode. Well, and they reveal they reveal that this is because of the Venus drug. And he even hold out the Venus drug. And when Childress asks what it does. Mud explains this drug, and he says, What it does is give you more of whatever you have. With men, it makes them more muscular. Women, rounder. Men, more aggressive. Women, more feminine. And He gave it to the women before you met them. All right. This line had an effect on me as a kid. It, and I was thinking about it. And I think this is an, a, a line that we should spend a little bit of time on. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing is, is as a shy, nerdy kid who is 11 or 12 and going into puberty, who was really scared of talking to girls, this and who loves superheroes and superhero stories where people would take, you know, our man would take a pill and he would have superpowers for an hour or whatever it is. I, I saw this Venus drug pill as like superpowers. You know, and in particular, it would be superpowers because I was interested in what it would do with a man. And I was like, oh, if I took this, then girls would like me, you know, mm -hmm. like I sort of was interested in that idea. And it seemed very and the idea of a woman becoming more beautiful and more sexy. Well, that sounded kind of cool, too, to a pubescent 11 year old, shy, lonely kid, you know, <laughs> like that. That was a big deal. And then this is what I'm thinking about it now. And, and again, this is where it's like judge it for 1966, but also think about it today. One of the big issues in the world today is gender roles. And we're really starting to explore what because this says what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Women are supposed to be soft and round and feminine, and men are supposed to be big and strong and aggressive. And that is very traditional, inflexible versions of gender roles, you know. And, and today, and particularly when we have trans rights, and I actually know uh, several parents whose children feel that they identify as a different gender and what that means. And so we're suddenly looking at, well, what, what does gender mean? What is it? Like, what is it that makes someone a man? And one thing that that I really believe strongly is that 
you know, if you ask like, what does it mean to be a man? My answer is nothing. It means nothing. Like there are men who are tough and aggressive and physical, and there are men who are softer and gentler and quieter. And they're, you know, like, you know, like I love to cook. I love cooking and cooking was traditionally a woman's thing. In fact, we even see it in this show. Oh, home cooking from a woman. And it's like, I like wearing pink. I like wearing pink. Yeah. It's like, it's like, again, it's 1966. They hadn't, these things hadn't happened yet. But Star Trek is so ahead in so many areas. And this is one where it's so behind. You you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's, that's the problem is that there are so many episodes and and you look at like the 79, like proper, you know, or 80, actually, if you include the cage, 80 episodes of the original series, the percentage of episodes that hold up 55 years later today is it's a great ratio. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very impressive ratio that, that so many of the episodes are good and so many episodes Hold up, and so many episodes are not dated. But here's an episode for the reason that you just so eloquently explained is an episode that has not aged well, and it's so dated. And it, you know, there are aspects of this episode that that I admire, and there are aspects of them that I kind of cringe while watching. And the scene between Childress and Eve in their quarters is definitely one of them. But at the same time, uh, there comes a message, a positive message to this episode. And uh, when Eve takes the drug, which is not even a drug, Kirk sort of uh, slipped in a substitute, colored gelatin, and she still had the effect where she became physically beautiful again. And then comes the morale of the story, which is... There's only one kind of woman. Or man, for that matter. You either believe in yourself or you don't. And, you know, after all is said and done, after all the criticisms we've weighed against, Mud's women, to kind of end it on that note, in spite of the dated qualities and the dated aspects and the cringe-inducing moments of the episode, to sort of, like... Stick the landing with that comment makes me go, okay, I, I'm a, I'm good with you. I, I think it's a I think it's a great message. I think it doesn't make a lick of sense <laughs> because it's like like what she believed herself into having a better hairdo. Like you know, she believed herself for her clothes not to be wrinkled. Like it's yeah, just yeah, so. Yeah. And and for the other women in particular, there are genuine physical differences. You actually can't believe yourself into that. And then they we we find out, you know, that the, the other p- miners got married and, you know, subspace radio marriage, which I love is a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and that but they can have it annulled because it was obviously under false pretenses. And then Childress and Eve say, no, no, we're going to try this out. Like, let's yeah. say, and it's yeah. like Childress has been nothing but a jerk. To her and she has not been particularly nice to him and it's like so now you're gonna stay on this planet with this i mean like it just is just not believable at all to me I, I agree i agree like like but you know for the first time in the episode we see a hint of where the relationship where kirk and mud is gonna go uh in the following season when they walk out the door don't you think you could possibly by accident arranged to leave me behind here on this planet that would be punishment enough i can't do that harry but i will appear as a character witness at your trial if you think that'll help it'll throw away the key it's so it's perfect it's so funny and it shows 
it shows why these two characters have such good chemistry together. Absolutely. And Kirk has such a sense of humor and like he likes Harry Mudd in a, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, even when they go back to the quarters when uh, Kirk says, uh, you're a liar, Mr. Walsh. I think we both understand each other. And Walsh walks out of out of his quarters and Kirk looks at the door and smiles and just shakes his head like, like, you know, he's not taking any of this, any of this too seriously. But, you know, when they're back on the Enterprise for like the final moment before they warp out of orbit, uh, Spock says something very unspockish on two points. He says, I'm happy the affair is over. A most annoying emotional episode. A, Spock said he was happy and he called something annoying. So again, you know, we're not quite there yet. Uh, I think by the middle of the first season, that's a line that would not have been said quite that way by Spock. But it still still works. You know, you still have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy on the bridge, you know, sort of like ending the episode with with their little joke before they, you know, sort of speed off into hyperspace. Well, you know, we have a little bickering between McCoy and Spock, which I, you know, and, and we also find where uh, Spock's heart is, which is somewhere around yeah, yeah. here. Here. <laughs> um, it's it's a funny, it's a funny little bit. It, it, and it's so funny, like people criticize show that, you know, we'll, we'll say, oh, that's not right. They didn't do that right. And it's like, look, it takes a while to figure out all the stuff. I once tried to write a novel, which I never finished. And it was a sci-fi novel. And I realized, like once I got, and it was like a colony on Mars. And I suddenly went, oh, I had to figure out everything, how the colony works, where they get their food from, where they get the power from. What does the hallways look like? What is, what are they, I had to figure it all out. And I just went, oh my God, that's a lot. And Star Trek does an amazing job. Yes, absolutely. they're figuring stuff out as they go, but they, they really do an amazing job. But you see, you know, see, that's what's fascinating to me about watching these episodes in production order. Again, to put yourself in the context that nothing like Star Trek had ever been done before. So to see them finding their way with certain things like pacing and lighting and and certainly McCoy or, or you know, uh, uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy trying to find his way in Spock. I think it's fascinating to watch them figure it out as yeah. they go along for the first few episodes. But then at the same time, I have to say for a show that had never been done before at all in the history of television, you know, as just as they are crossing over from black and white into color, there was so much that Star Trek got right out of the gate. And uh, these early episodes, uh, you know, we, we talked about, about things, especially with regards to, to the mission statement, to the uh, the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know Shatner's like spot on performance, uh, the music. But uh, there is there was one scene that was cut from the episode. Mm. Now I don't know if it was filmed and cut or it was in the script and they just never they never filmed it. But there was a scene where Harry Mudd is trying to convince Uhura to take the Venus drug. Oh, really? Yeah. And he goes into this whole monologue where he was trying to convince her to take it. And Roger Carmel was very disappointed that the scene didn't make it into the final episode. Now, I I couldn't tell if the episode was filmed or it was just in the script and just never filmed it. But that would have been an interesting scene to to see uh, uh, Mud try to convince Uhura uh, to take the Venus drug. Uh, The other thing that's interesting is while they were filming this episode, there was a writer who uh, was writing another screenplay. He was down on the stage taking pictures with the cast and not doing his job to the uh, annoyance of uh, of Bob Justman 
and uh, some of the other producers. And that writer who was supposed to be working very hard on his episode, but wasn't, was a guy named Harlan Ellison. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was supposed to be locked in his office on the Desilu lot, writing his screenplay that he was commissioned. The screenplay, of course, was sitting on the edge of forever. But uh, when when they went into his office, you know, and saw that he wasn't there and they found him at the stage, they were they were pissed. I, I He must have walked in to look at Bud's women and just gone, come on, you know, <laughs> like, let me show yeah, right. let me show you how it's done. Right, right, right. Let me show you how it's really done. But, you know, listen, talking about uh, an episode like this with you, uh, I see the flaws more clearly and I see the strengths uh, and I see things that I never considered before. I mean, I, th- I think your your whole point about she, her, him, he, his, uh, and, you know, transgender, non-binary, I mean, that's all something that a line that, uh, uh, you know, a line like the one you said just doesn't fit anymore, but it's still an episode that I still ultimately think is decent, not a required viewing, but from the standpoint of an early episode, it is still uh, interesting to watch as they continue to find their way until they started to hit their stride in the middle of the first season. I totally agree. I think there's, there's things in here that are neat. And I think the cool thing about science fiction and about Star Trek is it gives us stuff to think about and to question. And even then, even, even though it doesn't quite hit it all right, it is trying to deal with these ideas of sexual attraction. It's trying to deal with ideas of drug addiction. It's trying to deal with some of that stuff. It doesn't do it that well. But I think this is one of the geniuses of Gene Roddenberry's ideas is that he knew that getting us on the Star Trek Enterprise would allow us not to tell just one kind of story, but to tell all different kinds of stories. And this is a good example of a very different kind of story. Absolutely it is. And, and, you know, I always felt like, you know, Star Trek really was at its best when it, when it sort of looked at, at contemporary issues and, and portrayed them in such a subtle way that you didn't feel like you were being beaten over the head. Right. Now you have an episode like like you know in the third season, let that be your last battlefield. While an effective episode, uh, there's nothing subtle about it. It's as subtle as a sledgehammer. And in this episode, much women, you know the uh, the drug angle at a time when when drugs were were obviously you know making the rounds in in society. But you know then you have an episode like this side of paradise, which deals with the hippie movement in a very very clever subtle. A very sci-fi way, yeah. and um, you know that's one episode I'm really looking forward to talking about. You know, Scott, I I had a little bit of trepidation about Mud's Women, but the fact is that was a fantastic conversation. And if you want to tune in for more of these conversations, you just need to subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify. Audible, a whole bunch of other places. Please leave your reviews. It's really important for the show to get noticed. And if you want to interact with us, you can do it on our Facebook page. Search for Enterprise Incidents, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram, but it's only Enter Incidents on Twitter. Scott, how would people find you? Well, please let us know what you think and hit me up on Twitter. My handle here is at Movie Mance, all one word. Also on Instagram, at Movie Mance. But please hit us up on Twitter because we want to know what you think of Enterprise Incidents. We will respond. We want to hear your feedback on what you think, not just of the show, 
but what you think we should do to make enterprise incidents even better than it already is. We are very, very excited to, to be doing enterprise incidents. And personally speaking, this is a very big deal for me, A, not just because I have loved Star Trek all my life, but because this is the very first podcast that I have co-hosted on a regular basis. And I got to tell you, I could not ask for a better first officer than Steve Morris. Steve, where can people find you? They can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I'm, I'm proud to be your number one. It was <laughs> so good having you as a guest officer on the cinephiles so many times, including 2001 and uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner is one of people's favorite episodes of all times even though we recorded it three years ago we still get people commenting on that episode so check out the cinephiles i have a feeling well we had a good conversation on mud's woman that we might even have a better conversation coming up next you know one good thing about enterprise incidents and you know we're really early into the show but i can already tell that with each and every conversation we have steve on these 80 episodes of the original series, of course, including The Cage, that episodes that I maybe sort of liked, I, ho- I like a whole lot more, and episodes that I really love, I love even more. And with that, wait till you hear our conversation for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, what is, which is an episode that is extremely crucial to the development of the series extremely crucial to the relationship between James T. Kirk, Mr. Spock, and Leonard McCoy. And this is an episode that has a lot going for it. There's a lot to discuss. We go deep, and this is an episode that is very controversial because of an incident, shall we say, that happens between Captain Kirk and Yeoman Rand. The episode, of course, we're talking about here is The Enemy Within. So, Make sure you come back and listen to it twice for the Dark Kirk and for the Good Kirk. Next on Enterprise Incidents, until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.